I really look for founders that deeply understand the space that they're going into beyond just the technology alone. The mindset has to be they're looking for really important problems to solve. Welcome to Manufacturing Happy Hour, the podcast where we get real about the latest trends and technologies impacting modern manufacturers. Manufacturing Happy Hour. Each week, we interview industry experts that are at the top of their craft and give you the tools, tactics and strategies you need to take your career and your business to the next level. And now your host, Chris Lukey. Hey, what's up? Welcome to episode 71. Today, we're talking about reimagining and investing in legacy industries. We're going to be chatting with Nan Lee, who is the managing director at Obvious Ventures. Now, this group is a venture capital firm that's really focused on entrepreneurs that are solving problems in some of the biggest sectors of the global economy. They're leveraging robotics and deep technology to transform industries like pharmaceuticals, protein therapy, industrial materials, and manufacturing in general. So given that, here are three things that you can expect from today's show. Number one, we're going to get to know Nan. First, he's going to take us through why this is such a critical time for robotics and automation before we get to hear some of his background coming up in the Rust Belt, then how he ultimately bridged that gap with the VC world out in California. Second, we're going to talk about Obvious Ventures. We're going to dive into more detail as to where they're focused, what they look for in technology, as well as the teams and founders they invest in. Finally, we're going to talk about Nan's new show, The Machine Visions Podcast. Now, just for a quick teaser, this is a show about the acceleration of robotics deployed across every sector of the economy. And quite frankly, if you enjoy manufacturing happy hour, I can guarantee you will also enjoy this podcast. We cover some good resources in this episode, so as always, you can access the show notes over at manufacturinghappyhour.com slash 71, and if you're enjoying this show, please consider leaving a five-star rating and review over at Apple Podcasts. You can get there by going to manufacturinghappyhour.com slash iTunes. It's very easy, very fast to leave a rating and review. doesn't even need to be more than a couple sentences, so if you can and you enjoyed this episode, I would highly encourage you to do that as well. And with that, let's jump in. We're going to take a virtual trip to San Francisco to start our conversation with Nan Lee. Okay, Nan. So when we were warming up for this interview, you live in my past home of San Francisco. And I had just name-dropped a beer bar called Toronado, saying, hey, theoretically, if we were having this conversation at Toronado, and not surprisingly, you knew what Toronado was. It's a San Francisco legend. So I I feel like we have to set the stage. Ideally, we'd be having this conversation in person over some cold beers at Toronado, kind of a grungy, old-school beer bar in San Francisco, been around for over 30 years. How would you describe it? Yeah, I, I used to live two blocks away, uh, so that's that's a very special spot for me, and certainly an upgrade from both of us doing this on Zoom in our homes. So I, I like that scene. Uh, but and I would describe it as, you know, folks in biker jackets drinking, uh, very hoppy beers on tap that that are very rare, and they have a a really unique uh, selection over there, and and it's it's a neighborhood staple. 
Yeah. And and I had heard about Toronado before. I think any craft beer nerd has heard about it. It's basically kind of a, a craft beer destination for for that world. I didn't realize it was the name of an Oldsmobile car because it has some garage vibes when you're inside of there also. Yeah, very much so. I, I think very intentionally. And and I'm excited to talk about some of your Detroit experience coming up, but let's let's stick with Toronado for a second. I, I want you to answer this question as if we're sitting there having some IPAs right now. As an industry, we've been talking about robotics and automation for decades. So why is now such a critical time to look at them under a new light? Yeah, as, as one does when, when having beers, talking about uh, industrial automation, that topic is, is very top of mind for me. I, I spent a lot of my time in the industry, and uh, I've been a student of history in, in this space for quite some time. And as you mentioned, uh, automation, robotics, these are really old topics. Um, and I think the critical time and, and the, the catalyst for now is just that a lot of things have changed about that industry. And uh, I think it's it's worth looking under a new light and, and maybe even worth giving a new name because things are so different than a decade ago. Uh, you know, I would just very quickly break things down into changes on the tech side and a lot of changes on the market side. Uh, you know, in terms of tech maturity, I think just the fundamental fundamental building blocks of building robotic and automation systems up have improved in it across every component. Uh, hardware is cheaper and more accessible across the board, and that's everything from robotic arms to sensors. Uh, and then there have been some very key advances in the core software capabilities that power these things, uh, from perception and computer vision to path planning, to collision avoidance, environmental awareness, all of these things that next-gen robots are supposed to do, uh, they now are, are much better at than before. And I think a lot of that uh, uh, is borrowed from the research and development from autonomous vehicles over the, the last 10 years. You know, think about the billions of dollars that have been spent trying to get self-driving cars to work and those core capabilities overlap into industrial automation quite a bit. So, so I think we've been able to borrow uh, and, and subsidize that development from another industry and apply it mm -hmm. in, this, in this area. Uh, and then I, I think the market need has only become exacerbated in the last 10 years. Uh, of course, the promise of automation is very appealing to industrial clients and always has been, but uh, consumers have shifted even more into e-commerce. So shipments are more complicated. They're, they're, they're more fragmented. And that puts a lot of weight on the supply chain. Uh, there's, uh, there's an aging workforce in manufacturing and fulfillment center environments. That workforce is mm -hmm. retiring and, and it's not being backstopped by a bunch of young people wanting to get into this line of work. Uh, you know, you, you hear about changes in our economy with, uh, Robin Hood and, and crypto speculation. You hear about the creator economy. So there are just different ways for people to make a living now. And this legacy category with pretty, pretty challenging day-to-day -day, uh, work is not as appealing as it used to be. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's created a ton of labor shortages throughout the entire industry. And you know, the, these facilities cannot hire and staff up even to the, the the degree of their current needs, much less their needs projected in in five years. So this is just a really dire situation that demands a solution, and and I think that's brought robotics and automation into the limelight. 
This is this was almost like a personal manifesto for you, I feel, in terms of where your focus is. You described what I heard was kind of a, a perfect inflection point, right? Where robotics, I should say hardware and software are coming together. You have influences from autonomous vehicles and then the market need, right? From crypto to the creator economy, this this massive Venn diagram overlap, making it the perfect time for all this to come together. And we're going to dive into that as we get a bit further, I do want to start with uh, I do want to start with your story a bit first because you grew up in Detroit, right? So Midwest automotive industry in your backyard. How do you feel that shaped your career? You know, my my parents made this this somewhat odd decision to immigrate from China straight to downtown Detroit, and uh, looking back, I, I thank them for that because I, I love the area. I still have a lot of friends and family. And I grew up with a, a different worldview, which I really appreciate. And I think the starting point there is that just the recognition that there's more out there than the tech sector and, and the internet. And as an investor in technology, that blind spot, I, I think, is pretty persistent across Silicon Valley, where there's a, a real echo chamber that, mm-hmm. oh, everything that that's innovative and interesting lies in consumer applications, web apps, it lies in uh, cloud computing, lies in dev tools. But I, I think from from my per- point of view, you know, these other industries are very close to home and very tangible. I, I've been in uh, industrial environments. I have uh, sort of one degree connections away of, of folks that, that are in these places. And I find it very interesting to look for solutions in, in these uh, industries. Yeah, a funny story I'll bring up, or at least an anecdote that that your team had made me aware of is apparently in in your meetings, like right before a weekend or something, you would say, hey, sorry, I got to fly out of town really quickly. I need to go check out these manufacturing facilities and see what they're doing and getting hands on. Is that is that true? Yeah, it's it's 100 percent true. You know, I, I think it's it's uh, a quality that I really like in founders and companies that are building in these spaces is that they're acutely aware of the, the details and, and the operational uh, reality of, of what these places look like. And, and because I expect that, I expect the same of myself. And I think as an investor, it's so hard to, you know, I, I'm in San Francisco, to sit in San Francisco and, and start to project what needs to be done in these spaces and, and who's, who's interfacing with technology, technology in these places. And uh, I think there's a lot of uh, uncertainty in that type of projection. So I try my best to see and feel these locations firsthand and finagle any way I can uh, invites into factories, into distribution centers. And uh, as I meet folks in the industry, they're always very generous if I if I offer to visit. And I can't tell you how much I've learned just by spending a day in, in these places and walking around and talking to people, bothering them during their, their work. Uh, but I, I've always loved that and continue to do that. What's uh, I have to ask, based on the way you answered that question, what's been one of the more unique ways that you've had to finagle yourself into one of these facilities? <laughs> I've definitely, I definitely have never broken in or, or you know, <laughs> gone through the back door. Um, but I think as I meet interesting folks, I always ask about their operational footprint and where facilities are, and then I, I, I definitely have invented some excuses of being in the area and just kind of saying, Hey, if I ever, uh, you know, flow through Atlanta, I'd love to stop by. 
And if I get the green light, you know, that becomes the reason. So I've done a lot of that. And, um, you know, I, I think there, there just aren't that many technologists uh, overall, founders or, or particularly investors that make that ask. So uh, mm-hmm. it's actually, I, I receive pretty uh, supportive reception from folks who really want to share what they're doing and, and they want solutions. And if, if you kind of have, have an open mind and you just want to go and, and learn about these areas, um, I've always found the, the execs and, and the industry leaders that I meet to be very generous with, uh, with their time and with showing me what these places are all about. And, and your strategy makes sense, right? As a longtime sales guy, I would often use the, oh, I'm going to be in the area uh, excuse as well <laughs> to get meetings yeah. secured. So I, I certainly know how that goes. I, I do want to ask you a bit more about your experience beyond just growing up in Detroit and some of these anecdotes. You have a lot of experience under your belt. You worked at Microsoft. You were at Bain Capital Ventures. Kind of going back to that first question that I would have been asking you at Toronado when did you realize robotics and industry were at an inflection point and that was going to be the area that you were going to double down? Yeah, you know, I think um, fortunately early in my career, I was at an investment firm, Bain Capital, and they were uh, heavily invested in retail. So they owned a lot of large retail brands with a distribution and warehousing footprint. So they 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 knew these environments and Uh, When I was there, we made an investment in Kiva Systems, which was a mobility solution for warehousing. And one of the early uh, companies that scaled up to reinvent how warehousing would operate, ultimately uh, tucked in to Amazon. And and now Kiva powers a lot of Amazon fulfillment centers. So that was was a really early exposure that that I was able to have. So since then, I've just been uh, a fanboy. I've been really (laughs) curious about this category. And I've been going to uh, industry conferences like ProMat, these kind of annual get-togethers, seeing the demos, talking to a variety of folks, uh, SIs, operational managers, execs, and, and of course, startups, making a few investments here and there along the way as well. And you know, I, I think that in, investors really shouldn't call out inflection points. You know, I think a lot of investors predict the future or try to make you know, statements about the future, but I just really try to observe the present. That's, that's the best that we can do is, hmm. is really observe what's going on. And, you know, I think to, on that side, what I've observed is that the, the promise of, of robotics and automation and the importance of it have always been there, of course, but the question has just been around capability and timing. And after following this industry for about a decade, I've noticed that one, there's a familiar pattern of what robotics and automation systems have sort of been going through for the last 10 years. Uh, you know, a lot of pilots, a lot of demo projects, systems that work in those demo projects, but not scaling up in production correctly. And and there's this, this, this sort of very tried and true uh, early start demo fundraising and then bottleneck immediately. And mm-hmm. what I noticed recently, it, just in the last couple of years, really, is that something is fundamentally changing about that. And, and it's it's systemic. It's not just one company, although I can point to a few brilliant companies that I think are doing great work, but something is is really changing across the board in this industry where 
it, it's it's sort of the 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 two uh, dynamics that we talked about meeting together. You know, one more opportunity is being given to robotic startups than ever before. Uh, the customers that they talk to are much more willing to take risk and bring them in, and and give them a real uh, a real footprint to deploy into, and then following that they actually succeed in deploying mm -hmm. and these systems are working they are production grade i've seen them uh you know in production for a long time and have been able to look at their their specs and they're really just blowing my mind in terms of how reliable they are uh their pick rates the the just overall performance of these systems is something that i've never seen before and uh, the tech readiness, I think, is finally there. So those two combined, it's just creating this lightning in a bottle event. But like you said, the the right forces are coming together. And the result of that, I think, is a complete reawakening uh, and a refresh of the robotics category uh, after, in, in some ways, a long-awaited period of promise. What I like about that answer is we. You, well, I'm going to say what you said a little differently, right? We're kind of beyond this like science project phase at this point where we try things, they don't necessarily work out. You mentioned demo projects, not starting correctly. And not only do we see it in the results and the activities that these robots are doing, but we're also seeing it in the investment community, right? I mean, you and I are both familiar with Dexterity, right? Company that's just funding rounds are coming all over the place. So it's an interesting time in this space for sure. And I want to ask, I'll segue into obvious ventures at this point. Now, what you're doing is uh, the managing director there. And we'll take a little step back there, but I think this ties into your overall story. You know, you look, the way I hear obvious ventures described is you look at companies that transform legacy uh, industries like pharmaceuticals, industrial materials, manufacturing. So why those areas? I think it's where a lot of the opportunity lies and so that that's the first why and then the second why is that change in those industries is is the most important and necessarily change that the tech industry can drive so it, it's a double whammy of i think they're both the the most sort of lucrative areas to go into uh, in terms of drastically changing something for the better and capturing value which is what companies want to do and they make up the vast majority of our quality of life uh, the sort of the world goes round because of those industries and uh it i i noticed even in the last year with with the pandemic when you when you sort of open up your sort of newspaper of choice what what topics are talked about it's the supply chain it's healthcare where where are the vaccines why aren't they distributed correctly why can't i get toilet paper you know these this this last year has really highlighted how important these industries are to our society and I think it's going to be the defining narrative of the next chapter of tech that mm -hmm. startups will take all of these great technologies discovered uh, in the tech sector, maybe applied in places like Google and Facebook and Apple and whatnot, and distribute all of that goodness to these other industries. And in that distribution, they are going to totally transform how these industries are run, how decisions are made, and, and all of that. I think is something that we are honored and thrilled and and just really pumped to support at Obvious. That's that's our mandate as a fund. What's a what's a company you're most excited about 
right now in these spaces? Maybe give me an example or two, right, and why you're stoked about them. Well, you you mentioned Dexterity, so I'll start there. Uh, that's that's a company that's very close to home because uh, I was really fortunate to invest in the seed round of that company, and ha- I've been on the board since, so I'm, I'm very close to that company. And uh, you know, when I first met Samir and the team, this was nearly four years ago. Uh, robotics to me was this sort of sleepy category that's been in stagnation for a long time, and I, I think the team has really uh, as we've discussed, refreshed every tool in that robotic stack and and applied it in this really interesting way to deliver solutions that work. And they're they're part of that that next wave of companies showcasing that uh, these solutions are faster to build, more adaptable to the environment, easier to integrate. And you know they're they're very much leading the way on what robots will look like. Uh, in the next decade, which are robots that don't live in cages, that don't need to be surrounded by tripwire, and that are deployed quickly and work collaboratively. Uh, so I'm I'm just really excited about what they're doing because it is ushering in, uh, uh, I think, a future in robotics where these systems can be applied towards a much wider set of tests. And if you think about the current footprint of the robotics industry, like an ABB or something like that, that's going to grow 10x because the amount of work that is unchanging and can be set up by an SI and left alone for two years is a really small fraction of the amount of work that's more dynamic and requires judgment. And if robots can take on that level of, of task, then the world's their oyster. So I think dexterity mm-hmm. is exciting in that sense and and leading the way there. Um, and you know, I think on on the um, on the manufacturing side, uh, this is a company that I interviewed during uh, in in one of my podcast episodes recently. But but uh, Amar, the CEO of Bright Machines, is taking a really interesting approach to. Uh, building micro factories and controlling the environment to be able to drop deploy a factory within a, a, a an existing facility and uh, automate product manufacturing. So there's there's so much going on, and you can see it being applied on the manufacturing side and also on the warehousing side. Uh, but I think it's it's a preview of what's to come and and how much capability is really out there to rethink how these places are are run and and how the workflows. Uh, really, really operate uh, on the ground. So I, I think those companies are are showcasing a speed of progress and a pace of deployment that hasn't existed before. And they're very much, uh, hopefully, the the guideposts for the future of the industry. A couple of companies I'm personally excited about as well. Dexterity has been featured on this show before. Also, I'm going to ask a different question related to the VC side of things as well, because we've covered, we've covered the technology, how these industries we talked about impact quality of life across the board, talked about the nature that, Hey, this is where, um, for lack of a better word, this is where the money is right now as well. One thing we haven't talked about though, is, is the people behind it. So when, what do you look for in the teams and founders that you invest in at obvious ventures? Yeah, I think the the first thing is uh, a team that is not tripped up by the technology alone. And it's it's such a nuanced point because to build these systems, it requires 
you know, significant tech expertise across a few different disciplines. You have to be good at hardware, good at firmware. You have to understand modern uh, ML and computer vision software. So, so technical prowess is important. But what really uh, differentiates, I think, teams that can succeed and and, and get past that demo uh, uh, version in this industry are teams that can get into the mindset of a customer and into the mindset of a facility. So uh, I, I really look for founders that deeply understand the space that they're going into beyond just the technology alone and are not looking for a place to apply their great technology, but the mindset has to be they're looking for really important problems to solve and then back into the technology that seems to make sense uh, against that. Um, mm. So a, a, I think a tremendous amount of of uh, industry empathy is a, a you know is a very important requirement. Wow, I loved that answer. I love it even more now that you mentioned the term industry empathy. I think that makes a lot of sense. Getting into the mindset of the facility, what a great way to describe it, right? Like, do you do a lot of these people you work with uh, have experience having worked in these industries before, before having gone into, let's say, a tech solution that addresses a problem in that industry? Sometimes that's the case, but more often than than not, the the tech talent comes from adjacent spaces, maybe someone from Google, maybe someone from a robotics research lab. So they may not have as 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 many miles traveled. Uh, but the important thing is that they're aware that they can't build a solution in a vacuum and just release it out into the world and change how things are done because the gatekeepers in these in this industry, they're they're highly skeptical and they really want to understand how this will help them. And uh, you know, I think that that's a really important change in the mindset of founders as you go after the categories that we focus on at Obvious, you know, pharma, healthcare, industrials, these customers are not interested in technology alone. They're not wowed by it. They don't, they rarely have a, a real innovation budget to begin with. They're trying to solve their problems. So I, I think that's that's really different than how startup founders have typically operated. You know, think about the success stories of the tech industry. It's it's Netflix, Netflixing Blockbuster. <laughs> you know, building a solution <laughs> on building a solution without really any interface with the incumbent, and then circumventing the incumbent completely to displace them. Right. That 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 kind of narrative doesn't really work in the industries that that we fund at Obvious you really need collaboration. You know, for, for industrial automation products to work, they have to be deployed into real facilities that are not owned by those companies. They're owned by other companies, their customers. They have mm -hmm. to be used by untrained uh, workers and facilities management, and they have to not be intimidating and they have to be helpful. So mm -hmm. so just, just looking at that sort of A-B comparison, you can see the... This idea of industry empathy, it's not as important when you're just building software or building consumer services where you can kind of break the convention and, and go directly to the end customer. Uh, I think here, making sure that you get buy-in, that the technology not just works, but is relatable to the end users, um, just thinking all of that through is really important. And we, we love founders that have a 360 view of, okay, here's the technology, here's the customer pain point, 
here are the end users that I affect that are sort of adjacent to, to the footprint of this technology. And they map mm -hmm. out all of those different constituents and think about, okay, what is their mindset? How do I walk a little bit in their shoes, like one by one? And uh, think about, will they like this? Will they be scared of it? How do I do something in the product to make this better for them? Uh, I think that's really the path to success here. I think you're sh you're you're doing a great job of simplifying a lot of things that I think manufacturing leaders think about, but don't necessarily know how to articulate, right? Like making a product relatable to the person that's using it. You know, we use fancy words like UX, UI and whatnot, but really you're drilling down to what's most important there. I have one more question before we go to talking about your new podcast, which is out, which I'm excited to discuss as well. But sure. since you have a unique background in that you grew up in Detroit, you've been out in Silicon Valley for a while now, this is a two-part question. What can, let's say, Detroit, the Rust Belt, Midwest learn from Silicon Valley, and then vice versa? What can Silicon Valley learn from these industries that are more central, more east region? Yeah, you know, it, <laughs> it is a, a little bit of a culture clash, but I think increasingly there are more interconnections between the two as tech innovation hits, as we mentioned earlier, the auto industry and mm -hmm. manufacturing and industrials, and and even tech companies are moving to the Midwest. I, I'm really happy to see that. Um, you know, I, I think on on the uh, on the industrial side, I think the the biggest learning and and the spirit of Silicon Valley, which is no problem is too big. Uh, nothing can be, nothing is, you know, is left unsolved. This kind of mindset that anything is possible. I, I love, I love that perspective. <laughs> I love the perspective of being able to rethink, you know, a facility, an operational workflow from scratch to design something that is generationally better. And this spirit of reinvention and the, the, the sort of constant pursuit of excellence of the tech sector I think is one of the great exports of America as an economy and and it's first getting exported into these other industries but I, I love seeing that uh, on the on the flip side you know I think that you know Detroit and and proverbially proverbially Detroit but maybe we can just say industrials as an area I think the spirit there is uh, that I, I really like is uh, show your work you know, uh, Silicon Valley is is known for maybe being a little bit of an over marketer, an over promiser of, of capability, and I think what resonates to to you know the auto industry and the supply chain industry and and leaders in those places is really like what can you do, and I really like that concept of you know go in there and show what you can do. Um, you know, solutions only are valuable if they get a job done and they solve a problem, and there's there's no value placed on just sort of tech talk and marketing. And there's, there's a real impatience of like, okay, like, can I put you in a facility or not? And I, I love that mindset. And I think it, it is a good forcing function for entrepreneurs to hone in on the problem they're looking to solve and minimize the time where they're pitching high level vision or pitching a demo but really just get in these facilities. And if it works, then I'm ready to scale to a hundred. I, I love that gauntlet mm -hmm. being thrown to technologists. Yeah, it's it's an interesting balance, right? Of, hey, what's worked and what's worked well? And then also what can we do to make it work better? That anything's meant a uh, possible mentality. 
Excellent answers. Love diving into this side on obvious obvious ventures. As as we get towards the the latter half of the show, I do want to talk about the Machine Visions podcast because we've got a lot of people that are very involved in the robotic space that listen to Manufacturing Happy Hour that I think are going to dig your new show as well. So I've got a couple questions around it, but just yeah, tell sure. us about the new podcast right out of the gate. How you know how do you describe it in your own words? Yeah, well, you know, I'm an amateur, Chris. <laughs> You're the pro, and and I've gone through a <laughs> a pretty steep learning curve, but it's been really fun. Um, you know, we've been essentially sitting on this realization that something's really taking off in robotics and in industrial automation, uh, not just with one isolated company or one success, success story, but the entire space. And I just felt like it was our responsibility to to highlight this for the industry and to help catalyze more collaboration between Silicon mm -hmm. Valley and the industrials world. And, you know, we thought a great way of shining a light on this is to produce a short series of deep interviews with some pretty interesting leaders across a, a, a few different walks of life. You know, we have uh, shows with growth startup founders that are uh, and that are rapidly growing their deployments and growing leading companies in the space, academic leaders who have been doing research for a long time, and mm -hmm. some seasoned execs that have a ton of miles traveled in this industry and have seen waves of technology come and go. Uh, so it's it's been a lot of fun. And, and the whole point is to highlight what's going on right now that's so special. Why is it different this time? And uh, we, we've heard just great answers to, to those questions. And uh, I think a lot of optimism for how this industry will change and develop very quickly here in the next five years. Well, I don't want to give too much of a way. I did have a chance to listen to one of your episodes before jumping in here. Um, and, and for those listening that are looking for another good podcast, this is one of them. The stories there are great. I think it was the founder of iRobot uh, talking about some of the, let's say, challenges with some of their first generation Roombas on there. So really humorous to pull the the curtain back there. I, I have a question because you do have quite the big lineup on there. We were talking about Bright Machines earlier. We were talking about Samir over Dexterity. What's something you've learned from these folks that's surprised you so far? Maybe something you didn't expect when going into starting a podcast? Yeah, I mean, I, I I've just really enjoy the experience. And I think each guest has brought something really special to the table and a different perspective. You know, one that I would highlight that's pretty rare because, you know, I think startup founders are pretty accessible with their ideas and their visions. But we we recently had Greg Brown, who heads up ATG at UPS, which is their advanced technology group that covers these next gen products. And I just thought that was a really unique perspective to, to bring and highlight. And I'm so glad that he came on the show because he's been at UPS for 25 years, maybe 26 and he's been leading this group for a really long time. And, you know, something that, so he has so many interesting perspectives because he's been looking at automation initiatives for two decades. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, something that he said that I thought was fairly counterintuitive and just such a great point of view is that when, when different teams come in to pitch them solutions and they have so many vendor choices with the scale of UPS, they're the dream customer essentially for any of these companies, uh, you know, he he actually mentioned that having narrow product focus is to him is much better than having sort of generalizable tech capability and touting that. 
uh, he, he says that that's always a red flag. If someone comes in and says, we're such and such, and here are our technical credentials. We, we went to these schools and we worked at these research labs, at these kind of beacons of, of excellence in academia. You know, that doesn't mean anything to an industry exec. And what he mentioned is that narrow product focus and then extreme alignment behind that product focus, which is we're here to solve this problem. And because of that, this is why our entire team is relevant. This is this is why we assembled our exact IP stack, our tech stack. And we've spent this many hours in that environment. And we know this use case. And we could be your workers if you wanted us to. You know, he says that's what wows us. When we see that clarity, we start to feel like, hey, maybe this can work in deployment. And it's not a research project. Because at this point, we're not looking for innovation projects. We're looking for things that we can scale. And that really should be music to entrepreneurs' ears because that's the opportunity they've been waiting for is, you know, these these clients are ready to scale. Uh, mm-hmm. and, and it's just a really interesting perspective that I think a lot of founders want to go in and start talking about we're excellent at this and that and, and the other. But um just being again very problem focused and, and the extreme version of of what that looks like, uh, I, I thought was a really unique point of view. Well, there it's funny that your answer is pretty relatable to podcasting as well, right? You talk about how he prioritizes folks that have that narrow focus, that narrow product focus, rather than a bunch of uh, technical credentials, right? We're doing the same thing here with our shows. We're narrowing on a manufacturing, robotic, tech-centered audience and creating a great show for them rather than trying to, you know, capture the world like Joe Rogan. Yeah. So interesting <laughs> example there. Uh, as as we wrap up, I have to ask you, is there anything we didn't cover that you wish I would have asked you? Maybe not so much a question, but what what I see here, maybe I'll answer my own prompt. Okay. <laughs> it, you know, <laughs> Part one of this is that something's really clicking between tech maturity and industry need, and that's very exciting for the companies that exist. I think part two is that this will usher in a totally new era of robotics, and that will create opportunities for brand new companies. It will create opportunities across a ton of different industries. So I, I think the the question that I would like to answer is is kind of what's our point of view of the next you know, near future, five five years or so. And I think there's just going to be an explosion of uh, new companies being started that are very problem specific and tackle different things. I think that we will start seeing uh, documented company-wide uh, deployments of robots in the thousands of units in the next five years, just unheard of scale. And um, I think that's that this is the very exciting beginning and where, where things are starting to really click. But the real exciting thing for me is how that all matures in the next five, 10 years and how much change the industry will see. Uh, so that, you know, I think we're very optimistic for the future and are actively uh, looking to support that by investing in new companies, by connecting with industry folks. Um, and you know, we're going to be very active in this category. Well, the cool thing about creating content like this to get meta one more time is that we're going to be able to look back on this in five years and see if this prediction was right. So we're recording this in late 2021. So I look forward to revisiting this in late 2026. Great. To see where this has ended up. (laughs) Keep me honest. Great. No, I share your views. I, you know, not too long ago, I was just at a 
an AMR and logistics conference down in Memphis, another major logistics hub uh, in the U.S. And and everything you're saying seems to resonate with with what I think people are seeing in the field. So we'll be interested to get people's comments from this episode. I did have a question I wish I would have asked you, which I'm going to throw in there now. Yeah, we talked about being at Tornado, but what would we have been drinking at Tornado if we had been there? What's your local beer of choice? I'm going to go with a crowd favorite, Pliny the Elder. <laughs> I was I was going to go with the same thing. Yeah. I just like I used to. I, so you mentioned you lived a couple blocks away from there. I lived one train stop away from there, just over in the Coal Valley neighborhood. And there was a market where they sold Pliny by the bottle over there. Just uh, it's an amazing. Yeah. Amazing beer. If you ever want to do a beer episode, uh, I think Rush, the Russian River folks are fascinating. They're they're just excellent at their craft. And uh, I think Pliny is is a really great example of a, how balanced and just how how deep the flavor can be in a beer. So, yeah, <laughs> different topic. <laughs> Completely agree. I uh, I still think it's the best West Coast, just classic IPA that's out there. And quite honestly, the perfect size too. those bottles, I think, are 19.2 ounces. It's enough to have just a little bit more than one beer. It really, uh, really hits the spot. So, yeah. And at, at 10 percent ABV, you know, that's that's like three beers. <laughs> yes, exactly. All, all, all you need is one of those and, and you're going to have a pretty good night. So, well, around a Pliny's to, to wrap up the conversation. So what's next for Obvious Ventures? And then what can people expect coming up on the Machine Visions podcast when this comes out here at the end of November 2021? Yeah, you know, I, I think um, what's next is more of the same. You know, we, we've really become emboldened in our mission to support companies transforming industries. And we're seeing companies do just that and succeed. Uh, so we are going to be continually investing across early stages of some of the most cutting edge technology companies out there that are working in industrials and in healthcare and in transportation, these very important industries. Uh, and we're, we're thrilled that we can be a part of the story of some of these pioneering companies. And we want to keep highlighting success stories and showcasing how optimistic we all should be about that future. Um, so we're going to be pushing more episodes in the coming weeks and definitely doing a lot more investing and publishing uh, in this area. So uh, you can follow us and, and find out more at obvious.com. Excellent. And I will link up to everything in the show notes over at manufacturinghappyhour.com, a place for you to subscribe to the Machine Visions podcast, learn more about Obvious Ventures. So we'll make sure that's all hooked up in the show notes. And with that, Nan, I just have to say thank you so much for jumping on today's show. Thank you, Chris. I will see you at Toronado very soon, I hope. Absolutely. I hope so, too. And for everyone else out there, we'll catch you later. Cheers. Hey, thanks for listening. And a big thanks to Non and Obvious Ventures for making this episode possible. If you want to learn more about Obvious Ventures, if you want to learn more about the Machine Visions podcast, or if you want to learn more about Tornado, the spot where we talked about grabbing drinks, you can do all of that over at the show notes page at manufacturinghappyhour.com slash 71. I'm also excited to announce that Obvious Ventures is actually the newest sponsor of Manufacturing Happy Hour. We're stoked to welcome them to the family, and honestly, I'm just stoked for their new podcast. Like I said, I've listened to some Machine Visions, and if you enjoy Manufacturing Happy Hour, if you like tech, if you like robotics, you're definitely going to want to check this out. 
You'll hear us mention Machine Visions and Obvious Ventures more in future episodes, so keep an ear out for them. We will be reminding you about them as time goes on. And with that, that's it for this week. Thanks so much for sticking around. Stay innovative, stay thirsty. We'll catch you again next time. Cheers. Thanks for listening to Manufacturing Happy Hour. Powered by the Industrial Network.